0: Well, hey, folks, I'm Adam, and I can't believe it's Wednesday already. I have been reminded in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 15, when Paul said to the, Saint, the beloved of God called saints in Rome, he said, I cannot contain my enthusiasm to come and preach the gospel to you. I have felt that way since I was invited to do this last week. I'm very thankful to uh, Brother Grant uh, for inviting me to do this, and for y'all coming out to be willing to hear me tonight. Uh, thanks to Brother Cameron getting the hymns together, and for putting the pew out here. Because I have some habits, and one of them, I like to drink water when I preach. I gotta keep charging up, or else I go dry. I don't know how David Platt does it. if you were here for the secret church. I know y'all watch that. That man goes a long time, but I don't have that stamina. But I sure am appreciative to be with you. And I am not a member here, and I am a guest. I love my church at Auburndale. I am very appreciative to come join you folks on Wednesday night for Bible study, as I've done in the past years when there's no uh, no public gatherings going on at my congregation. And I I recognize being a guest. This is the first time you've ever heard me, most of you, give a message, and you'll form your opinions out of that. But the way I look at it, I don't know if I'll ever get another opportunity to preach again. None of us know tomorrow, and I've been reminded of that this week, that we don't know that we got a tomorrow, and especially when I think about the old saying that we don't know when we're in any gathering of people if that same combination of people will ever meet together again in the same place ever again. We don't know that. So we got opportunity here tonight, and we got God's Word in front of us. And if you would, please turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 1. And I do believe, uh, Brother Grant, you request that I go through verse 6, right? Chapter 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 6. Do read with me. From the Gospel of Mark, Jesus went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. "'Where did this man get these things?' they said. "'What is this wisdom given to him? How are these miracles performed by his hands?' Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simeon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Then Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household." So he was not able to do any miracles there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief, lest it be the reading of God's word. We make a first observation from our text in front of us, the place that Jesus is. We have heard in previous weeks of his Uh, For lack of a better word, his adventures around the Sea of Galilee, walking on the water, going to shore to shore and healing the people, casting out demons, telling the sea and the wind to be quiet. But now we see Jesus coming home to the little town of Nazareth, not located anywhere on the banks of the Sea of Galilee but perhaps 18 or so miles to the west of the Sea of Galilee. The little town of Nazareth, one of the commentators I read went so far as to write, Nazareth was a nowhere town populated by nobodies. You could probably count its population by a couple of hundred and you wouldn't even need to go up to a thousand. It was a small town and it is surely for good reason that when Jesus was calling his disciples, that in the Gospel of John chapter 1, Nathanael says, when he is being brought to Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is the hometown of Jesus. Not the town of his birth, but the town in which he was raised and grew up and learned to trade in which the people knew him simply as the carpenter's son, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Judas and Joseph and Simeon and all of his sisters that are here with us as well. By all accounts, they didn't think him much special. And yet there surely would have been those reports of the things going on around that Sea of Galilee, We make our second observation that the reaction of the people to what happened when Jesus came to Nazareth, we see here that he walks into the synagogue, as was his right to do, and we see him, and we could read in another gospel, in Luke's gospel, I believe, of the teaching that he did in the synagogue when he would ask for the scrolls, and he would read them and interpret them as one having authority, and the people recognized something unique about what had happened in their midst. Their reaction was not positive. In some instances, as you see throughout the four gospel accounts, when Jesus would go to a place and when he would proclaim the message, when he would preach, the reaction would not always be positive. Yes, you would have the people flocking to him and coming around him and following him, but you would also have others, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, They would look upon him with indignation. We read about it in the triumphal entry, of course, that they could not stand Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem on that cult as if a conquering king and they plotted to kill him. They couldn't stomach any memory of Jesus. They were offended by his message when Jesus would make statements like, I am before Abraham was. When he would make statements calling himself the son of man, identifying himself with the Old Testament prophecies of Daniel and David, they could not stand what they were hearing and they were offended at the content of the message. We get something a little bit different here in Nazareth. It is not so much in Mark's gospel the content of what he said that was offending them, it was the person who was saying it. It was his very character. They couldn't stand the fact that one of their own seemed to be acting too big for his britches. They couldn't, they didn't celebrate Jesus as this growing prophetic figure in Israel. They couldn't stand the fact that he had come out of Nazareth and they probably felt like they were getting lost and left behind in all his growing fame. One thing is certain, They were clearly not bored, and so I guess we can at least say that positively about them. But their reaction was one of indignation. In fact, if we would read from Luke's gospel, we would see an even more tragic and astounding debacle when they would take him out to the edge of town and try to stone him, throw him over the cliff. So now we get to a third observation from our text, Jesus' assessment of their reaction to his homecoming and to his message. And there he utters the phrase, famously, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, except among his relatives, and except in his own household. For those of you out there, who struggle with family evangelism, when you get to go home for the holidays and sit around the table with your unsaved relatives, I think you can take some solidarity in this passage here. And I hope it brings you at least maybe some comfort as you continue to pray for hearts to be changed for those people you love so much. But Jesus condemns them in this statement. And he, he not only condemns them in word, he condemns them in deed. When we see in verse 5, he was not able to do any miracles there. Another sense of that word ability there is the idea of volition. He willed not to do any miracles among them. And as we are reminded in Mark chapter 9, for the lucky soul who gets to preach from that passage, in Mark 9 verses 23 through 25, Jesus says, All things are possible for those who believe, to which the man with the sick child said, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Jesus then, it says in verse 6, was utterly amazed at their unbelief, and so too should we be amazed at the unbelief of the people in his hometown. Think about this for a second. Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the kingdom proclaimer, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the suffering servant, Jesus, the king of kings, Jesus, the prince of peace, whom Isaiah prophesied about that the government would be on his shoulders, whom Daniel and David write about when they look upon that heavenly vision. And they see one in all appearances as a man, but who is clearly more than a man. One who had equality with God the Father himself. Jesus the Christ, the Lord of life, in Nazareth. I mean, you ever met anybody like that? Um, Maybe you can see yourself a little bit of uh, these Nazarite, uh, this community. Maybe you come from a small hometown, and maybe you have aspirations of grandeur one day. I don't know what that would be. Write a book or, or get hired to some big important job or or be a star athlete or something and maybe somebody else from your hometown your little hometown somebody else from your little high school somebody else from your little graduating class maybe they're the ones that go on and do something amazing with their life and maybe you're stuck working your nine to five job whatever that is and maybe you don't think that's good enough and maybe you look at other people and you say all these other people have all these other advantages in life and I'm stuck doing this maybe Do you have that kind of resentment when somebody from your own little community, maybe God seems to be blessing them a little bit more than he's blessing you? I don't know. I don't know. But maybe you can understand and get yourself into the mind of these people in Nazareth who knew Jesus, who grew up with Jesus, who had him working in their midst As a mere carpenter or stonemason, I expect Jesus probably would have been skilled in both wood and stone, just a a fairly ho-hum little job. And they probably would have done business with him at times. They might have contracted him to do a few jobs for them when he was growing up and learning his trade. He might have been like the, the hired maintenance worker to come into your house and fix something up one day. And they might have grown up with him and never suspected he was anything more than man of humble means. Think of this in terms of the context Mark lays out for us in the gospel. Because we have this story recorded in other gospels. We see it in the book of Matthew. And Matthew tells us when Jesus was going around the Sea of Galilee that he did many, many more miracles and things than just what we read about in Mark. But it is significant the reason Mark writes his gospel the way it does because of the sequence that he shows Jesus doing these things and he wants to draw our attention to this. We read in Mark chapter 4 verses 35 through 41, Jesus has authority over the natural world when he told the wind and the waves to be still. We read in Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20 that Jesus has authority over the supernatural and spiritual realm in the casting out of the legion of demons into the pigs was a great message, by the way, Luke. I, I like that. I was here for that one. We read about Jesus in Mark chapter 5, verse 21 through 43, and his authority over all things related to the human body. When he heals the woman of issue of blood, and when he raises Jairus' daughter from the grave. Grant, I remember that. Thank you for that message. We see these things laid out, that there's no doubt that there's anything left that Jesus could be Lord over, because he's Lord of the natural world, he's Lord of the supernatural realm, and he's Lord of everything that has to do with the human body. And yet, people still are offended and resent him and do not believe in him. And they are entitled to no special miracles in their midst. Jesus was not interested in convincing people with hard hearts that he was who he said he was. Jesus came to declare the signs that had been prophesied and to preach the message that had, been set, that had been set and prepared in the Old Testament. And he came to strengthen the face of folks who already had that little inkling of it, given to them by, surely by the Father and the Spirit. And so... I ask you, friends, to put yourself once again in the place of the Nazarite people. The the people of, excuse me, not Nazarite, the people of Nazareth. Think about what it would mean to grow up with Jesus, to work with Jesus, to have him in your community, to live with Jesus and not be able to recognize him for who he was or, if you did, to not be able to appreciate him for who he was. I say this was a special application to those of you who are long-time churchgoers and church members. Because it may be said, friends, that you grew up in the church. Some people say they are Baptist born, Baptist bred, when they're gone they'll be Baptist dead. That's not accurate. Nobody's born a Baptist. Uh, unless it's the spiritual births and then uh, the brought into the church. Nobody's born a Baptist. We're supposed to have structures in mind to guard against that. But we don't. Goodness, uh, no denomination probably has as many inactive members as Southern Baptists. We've got to own that. So friends, think about what it means that you had the advantage of being maybe born into a church or coming into church at a young age. You had the advantage of for years sitting under preaching and teaching and going to worship and going to prayer meetings. You're surrounded by the people of God multiple times every week. And that may be perhaps the closest thing we can say to living with Jesus and growing up with Jesus. And yet, that's not the same saying as worshiping Jesus and having Him as your Lord. And so I ask you, friends, I ask you to look deep within your heart and say, where do I stand before Jesus as Lord? Where do I stand before Him? What, what, should, what could I even say? If I stand, but when I stand before the throne of God in eternity to come, and say, why should you deserve to get into heaven? And if you have any other answer that trusting in the sacrificial blood of Jesus to atone and forgive my sin, that's not the right answer. Now, my friends, maybe you've prayed a prayer. Well, great. Uh, you, You have to ask Jesus for forgiveness of sins, but how does your life line up with it? Friends, when you hear the word preached, does your heart have joy? When, you, when we sing the hymns, is it just a matter of going through the words for you, or do you rejoice at the content of what we're able to confess together? When we have the opportunity to get together and lift up our prayers and praises to the Lord? Do you have a good, do you have something that you're ready to give to him? Jesus, when he says everything is possible for those who believe, he's not offering a hells and wells gospel. He's not looking to, to meet every single one of your wants, but he is offering to meet every one of your needs spiritually, to put your heart in his hands and realize that you, if you can live by the, on the strengths of Jesus, if you can live in faith, trusting that he will supply your needs, then that's really all you need. In I say this sometimes, sometimes the blessed assurance is your only assurance for what's going to come in the future. And I hope that would be said of you as well. I think, again, when we read about the city of Nazareth rejecting Jesus, we ought to read this as a microcosm of what happened with Jerusalem and the Jewish people in large part rejecting Jesus. When Jesus Uh, says in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37, that, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have wanted to gather you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks, and yet you were not willing. And so do not be like those folks who had all the advantages of growing up with Jesus and going to hear the word taught and preached and yet never owned it as their own belief. Do not be like them, friends. Jesus stands ready to receive you, ready to save you, if you would but throw yourself onto his mercies and recognize that your sin is mighty. That no matter how many things you think you've done wrong, your sin is great against God, but His grace is greater, and He is willing and ready to receive you, as a mother hen gathers her chicks. I say one more word of application to you tonight, folks, and that would be to those of you who are professing Christians, who have been baptized, members of a church, and doing the Lord's work, seeking to to accomplish His fruit. I tell you that we ought to see another application in this text when Jesus says that no prophet ought to be without honor. I was reminded myself in Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, when he says, those elders who rule well are worthy of double honor, especially in the teaching and preaching. And he goes on to quote the Old Testament when he says, do not muzzle an ox that is threshing the grain, for a laborer is worthy of his wages. Church members, I tell you, you ought to be so grateful for those pastors in your midst, those under-shepherds, under Christ, who look over your soul, who work to bring you faithfully the word of God every week. You ought to be so grateful for them and their work Though your pastors are not infallible, let us hope that they are faithful. And if they are faithfully bringing you the word of God, regardless of how maybe you think they ought to be better, maybe you think they ought to be better preachers or teachers, maybe you think they ought to to have visited you at some point they didn't. And you can make recommendations. Don't hear me wrong here. I, I think most pastors like hearing the feedback but friends you ought to be you ought to take that to heart that if someone is working to bring you the word of God that you ought to give them the greatest honor and when Paul writes that to Timothy he has two things in mind number 1 he has in mind their financial compensation as he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 I believe it is those who make their living by the those who live by the gospel, ought to be able to make a living by the gospel as well. So the churches are obligated to take care of their pastors financially. And also, when Paul writes to Timothy about that double honor, that the church ought to give the pastors all the benefit of the doubt against any accusation, unless the, the, the witness against them be so overwhelming. And so, friends, I pray that you would take that tonight as one application, because Though our human leaders may let us down, we serve a Savior who is infallible. And so he has given us opportunities to come together, to be taught by his word, to praise him, and to lift up our prayers together. We ought to be so ever thankful of that, and we ought to always think of ourselves as children of God, if, if, but for the grace of God, we'd be like the folks in Nazareth. Friends, I thank you tonight for allowing me to be your preacher. And please join me in prayer now. Father, we are so thankful to hear from your word tonight. We take it to heart with great sobriety that we think of those folks who had all the opportunity to see Jesus live and work and speak and yet rejected him. We pray that would not be true of us, Lord that for the revelation given to us by your word is even greater than we might have hoped to be among those who lived in Nazareth and to have grown up with Jesus in our physical presence. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who's able to quicken our hearts and able to seal us for salvation that we so eagerly await. Lord. May our hearts jump with joy at that thought of what we have to look forward to. And we ask all in Jesus' name, amen.